When I was a kid, I spent many summer holidays with my uncle in a small town in the Irish countryside. There was a beautiful winding river, wonderful woodlands, a meadow, lots of sweets from the shop. And there were dead bodies in the building next door. They were never seen and never spoken about. But I knew they were there because next door was an undertaker's. Ever since those childhood days, I've been both intrigued and frightened by what must have been happening next door, afraid to ask, afraid I wouldn't be told, or maybe afraid I would. And now, as a grown-up, I want to ask some of those questions I didn't ask then. To take a step into that mysterious world, masked by solemn faces and black suits. Into the world of the funeral director. Ordinary people who have taken on an extraordinary job to perform the mysterious and essential tasks required when somebody dies. Good morning, or good afternoon. How are you? Not too bad. I think it's just... Hi, Martin. Martin has asked me to give me a... Bill and Martin Fitzgerald run their fourth-generation family funeral directors in McCroom in County Cork. Martin's been in the business for over 50 years, and his son, Bill, married with a young family, has worked with him since he was a teenager. We were just getting settled with our tea when the phone rang. Because, of course, it always begins with the phone. It's 24-7. Yeah, it is 24-7. And would you have the phone on even beside the bed then? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's just part of it. I've, you know, growing up in a house and, um, you know, when the phone rang, we four mobiles, we would have silence. I was a busy house of six children, you know. But you all jumped to a standstill yeah. when the phone went. Yeah. And then you'd wait and find out a bit more, I suppose, when the phone went down. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. You'd be told who passed away. and you know. Was it something you always knew you would do? Um, kind of like my father there, similar, around 14, you'd be here, you might be just, you know, polishing the coffins or helping clean the vehicles, and it progressed on then slowly. I wasn't the greatest of students. And, um, I don't know, I suppose, around 16, I had kind of a draw and an ability so I started doing a few hours. It was like a part-time job. Do you ever get a strange reaction in your ordinary life if somebody asks you what you do and you tell them? Well, I suppose you, you get kind of a mixture of both a person that goes, oh, or else they're very inquisitive. I think I may reluctantly fit into the inquisitive category and I quickly come up against one of the most important traits in a good funeral director. Utter discretion. And this is part of what gives the business such an air of mystery. Martin and Bill are the nicest gentlemen you could meet, but to begin with, it's a bit like interviewing a pair of secret agents. Is that on or off? It's on. <laughs> I'll put it down. Normally, I tell people just to ignore the microphone, and normally I they do. Ignore this no, I, I couldn't say what I'm going to say. Leave it over the Oh, air. really? No, no, because it's too sensitive. I'm sorry. A person wouldn't ask me a question because they know I wouldn't answer it. And then when, you know... And did you have to learn that, or does that come naturally to you? Well, it was very much instilled from the beginning, as I said. I'm with my father quite a few years now, and it was always instilled. Do you ever want to be like the three monkeys? You see nothing, hear nothing, and say nothing. Would you Would you mind showing me the show me no. around a little no, bit? No, would that no, be? No, no, yeah. No. You would say this would be the the office where we'd meet the people, and we go through the arrangements and so on. 
When you first contact the Fitzgeralds about a funeral, it's the beginning of a series of decisions that you may never have thought of before. When the person comes in there, when we speak to them on the phone, you know, but the first thing we tell them is, this is your bereavement, and do what you want to do. And if it's legal, we'll do that. This is where they select the coffins, then. It's a small room with coffins lining the walls right up to the ceiling. Dark, shiny wood, light, shiny wood, a couple of woven eco-coffins. The office could have been any office, but when you see a room full of coffins, you start to realise that this business is all about death. We take people through them, we explain to them, you know, the different qualities of the wood and so on, and, you know, we, and we, they're all numbered and priced, and we step outside and then give the people the time to decide what they want. Generally what you'd find is families, like for example, this plain solid oak is what all my family were buried in. And generally you'd find that with a lot of families, they go back to what they had the last time as well. So they come in and they choose. And then what happens next then? After, you, after they've chosen the coffin, what's the next step? First thing would be deciding what the family wish to do. You know, are they going to take the person back to the residence? Are they having removal from the funeral home? Are they going direct to the church? Is there any church? Most funeral directors in Ireland, like Bill, were born into it. But what if you weren't? Good morning, Death Care Academy. The Death Care Academy in Ballina, County Mayo, offers courses on all aspects of the funeral business. Can I just get your name, please? Carol Young is from Kildare. She has a good job in the motor industry, but she has a yearning to be a funeral director. Well, what happened was a friend of mine died. Very young, he was 37. And I hadn't really gone to see very many dead people before. And when I went to see him, his man was so excited about showing us how well he looked and how lovely he looked and the whole lot that she kind of, I got dragged into the room. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, he does actually look quite good. And he looked amazing. He looked really, really nice, like he was just asleep. And I thought, oh, I wonder how they made that happen, you know, because he'd been in a, a car accident, a motorbike accident. I kind of thought, oh, he shouldn't look that good, but he did. And then when I came away, I went and Googled it and came up with this college. And um, they had an open day about two or three weeks later, and I came along, and that's how I ended up starting, yeah. On the day I visit the Death Care Academy, David McGowan, its director, is training Carol in some practical aspects of the job. A big problem, there is a big problem with back injuries within our industry, because you're lifting... Now, I don't want to be sarcastic or be funny about this, but you're lifting dead weight. Mm-hmm. Literally. Yes. But there are uh, mechanical devices now introduced in, that can leave that work a lot lot easier. Yeah. Like we've introduced that lift there, for instance. Okay. That's a... Um, that's what runs along the rail there. So mm-hmm. um, it's quite easy for two people to position that person in, yeah. in and out without straining your back. Yeah. Like, there are two myths I have to try and get out of the funeral industry. One of... And I want to extinguish that. I want to get rid of that. One, one of them is that girls not a job for girls. Mm-hmm. I've heard that down mm-hmm. the road, right? There's too much lifting and all of that carry on. The other thing is you have to be from within the industry. Yeah. That you can't just become a funeral director. Mm-hmm. Whether you're born into it or not, it's definitely a job that doesn't suit everyone. I'm from a family of six. Uh, my three sisters wouldn't come inside the door of the place. 
I have one brother who would help out with rather than us, and one brother that will. You know, so that's that's how the six of us. So you're really two only out of the six that will. You know. And do you think that some people just really don't want to deal with the realities <sighs> of death, or? No, I think everyone is suited to certain things and not others. You know, I, I couldn't work in a kitchen. When someone you love dies, time does funny things. Speeds up, slows down, stops altogether. Until a person in a black suit arrives to take care of practical matters. No matter whether you thought you were prepared or not, it's always a shock. And this is when you have to think about things like death notices and whether you want flowers or whether you'll bring your loved one home to be waked or if that will happen in the funeral home. I'm just thinking of the funeral that Billy was doing today. We try to give the family as much time as possible. It's not a matter of going to the house, getting the form out, saying, OK, this is what we do, bang, 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 this is the death announcement. We go, we call... Then we try to call back again in a couple of hours. Then we come back again two or three hours after that. And it gives time for them to discuss, to sit down and have a cup of coffee and say, how would we like it to be done? What clothes would we like the mother or father to wear? It's to give people time. It doesn't seem to, to dawn on people or they, when they see us, it's it's just final. Although we might be saying we're bringing back the remains again in five, three hours, four hours, you know, that just that time seems to be the difficult time for the families. Just ten minutes down the road from Martin and Bill's funeral home lies Coulee, part of the Gaeltacht area of West Cork a place where, in some ways, time has really slowed down and the old way of doing things is still honoured, especially when it comes to death and wakes. Padre O'Riada is a stalwart of the Gaeltacht community and he's particularly involved in the community's age-old rituals around death. Well, even, uh, even around here still, um, if somebody dies... Quite often, it's the neighbours who laid them out, um, wash them, uh, pick out the clothes they'll put on. Um, like physically, I mean, I remember in different wakes, you, you'd take the body out in a sheet and you might put it on the floor for a while while you'd change the bed and do all these things. They're practical things. And then you dress the body and so on. And you know it's a bit uh, daft because the clothes are going to the grave but you, you do that anyway um, because there's no point in holding on to the clothes and you want them to look uh, leave a good kind of image even though they're dead Being an undertaker is not easy they come in at a very emotionally charged moment uh, for example when my mother died um, a relation of ours was 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 the undertaker and he came and myself my, when he touched our mother's body you know to make, she was not taken away and she was waked in the house but I remember my brother and I said no bloody way we'll do that ourselves thank you and we faked him out the door and and, and, uh, and I, I often think about it after it's very tough on him because he knew my mother and the, you know 
Um, so there's a, a very delicate thing about handing over the body and so on. Even though you know the body is no longer the person that you loved, there's still, it's heart to part. There's a painful line crossed when someone goes from being a person to being a body. And it's then that certain things have to be done, things most of us don't want to think about. But some people do want to think about it, like Carol Young. There's a theory aspect to her training, and on her break, I spotted one of her textbooks. What is this? This is one of my textbooks. And if I just... And I wouldn't advise opening it oh. if you're squeamish. <laughs> because it may have... It does have pictures. Very, it does. Embalming really, It's pictures history. of real people. Embalming history, yeah. theory and practice. And yeah. I'll just have a really quick look. I did just... There are very detailed pictures in there of um, dead people. Okay, there they go. That is a bit scary. <laughs> I'm used to... I, well, I, I'm not scared of it anymore, but... I suppose when I first got the book, the first thing I think nearly everybody does is go to the pictures. Don't we? We kind of all look at the pictures and go, oh, okay, right. But when you, uh, you get used to looking at the, the pictures for sure. The difference between you and me is I wouldn't be opening it again. And obviously you then decided <laughs> to study it. <laughs> I opened it and kind of went, oh, oh, what is that? Oh, how does that happen? You know, and how, how do you get like that and how do you fix it? So, you know, I actually find it really interesting. It's probably a bit odd, but... That book I don't um, leave hanging around anywhere. Mm. Like I wouldn't leave it on my desk and work in case somebody came along and opened it because it wouldn't be fair. Just People might, might be shocked and, and upset if they saw inside it. Or I, I kind of carefully hide it away if I bring it into work to study at break time or lunch. Mm. Okay, I think I'll just put that back. Yeah. <laughs> back in Fitzgerald's funeral home in McCroom, County Cork, Bill and Martin are preparing for a funeral. When somebody dies, a doctor has to sign the death certificate before the remains are released to the funeral director. And it's when I start hearing about bodies and certificates that I begin to feel unsettled about the physical reality of this job. I asked Bill what it was like to be born into a business that many people would find extremely difficult. Well, you'd say, like, it would be slowly, like, for example, we didn't do our own embalming on site till I was about 18. And I went away and I trained. I spent time in the States and with some of the larger firms in the country and learnt. Now, if you wish to see the post-mortem room, you may... Yes, if that's OK with you. Yeah. Oh, it's fine. Uh, you'll have to forgive me because we actually have a funeral on at the moment. So this is where you take the... What do you, do you say, the remains? Yes, yes, the remains there are. That's where we carry out the hygienic treatment. It normally takes... About an hour, but then with dressing and, and coffining, we allow up to three hours and five hours. And sometimes if we have to bring the remains back to the residence, so we spend really time, we allow about five hours. And would you say you're very comfortable now with the dead, the presence of a dead body? I suppose, you know, like it's been a, like I'm, I'm doing it now with over 20 years, just the embalming part. Um, it's part of the, the, when, See, with the effect of some of the drugs, there can be, like, you can have bloating, you can have purges, and this eliminates it. You know, it, it was impossible to take remains back to a house. We've had remains in houses up five, seven days, because as well with people having to go away to work, like, you could have a grandson in Australia, he could be in Canada, you know, and funerals have got longer, but in one sense it's been good for the people to give them time. You know, you don't have to rush. 
So by this fairly simple procedure, you can give people the space they might need, maybe? Yes, yes, yeah, no. Like a, a, a body can start breaking down with less than 24 hours. Yeah, and that's something people just don't want to be thinking about. No, 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 we explain it to them, but we get consent always to, to carry it out. We don't, we let the family know that we will be doing this and they have the decision then. And will you tell me again what you do, what the process is? Well, uh, we, we, we inject in a solution, um, similar to a drip, as we say, into the remains and we take out the fluids that are there. You know that that cause uh, um, any un- bodily fluids and broken down food and so on. Yeah. And um, do you ever, when you're in here with a, a dead body, you call, do you call them a dead? But what would you call? How would you deceased. describe the deceased? Do you ever wonder about ghosts or no, 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 no? no. Like I, like we'd be fortunate that we'd know an awful lot of our people personally. So I would, I would have known them, you know. And is there somebody under... under no, 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 Up until about 50 years ago, there was no such thing as a funeral home in Ireland. Bodies were waked in houses, brought to the church and buried. Conor Massey is a retired funeral director who worked for over 40 years in Dublin. The clean, white-tiled room in Fitzgerald's funeral home is a million miles from how things were done when he started off. Hello? The one thing I, I swore I'd never go into the funeral business because of the smells, to put it bluntly, of from dead bodies that I experienced as a young teenager when I'd be going out helping him as a bearer on a hearse or something like that. Lifting a body into a coffin, I always went to defeat as a young man because when you, lift, when you move a body, in those days, when you move the body, there'd be an expulsion of air and all the rest pretty, pretty bad, hard to, 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 um, sustain, to, to, to take on. And, and I've seen churches in the old days where overnight a body would have swelled so much that they would pop the lid off the coffin. And the, the, the lid would be effectively balancing on the swollen abdomen of whoever was in it and having to go up and put slips of timber to elongate the sides of the lid and screwing them in from the side, just so as we could have... And this church absolutely stinking, shocking things. And people accepted that. And bombing came in, brought in by funeral directors again in their pursuit of, of excellence, and, and uh, eliminated all of that. Now, but may I say, when we went to introduce embalming to an unsuspecting public, but we had a big, big job. We had to couch it in, in, in um, euphemisms. We wouldn't say embalming because people's idea of embalming was what happened in Egypt thousands of years ago where bodies were eviscerated and stuffed with wax and, and, and oils and all of this and wrapped up. So we couldn't say embalming. We used to say sanitary treatment, I remember, was the the euphemism we used, and we just explained we had a little injection. Now, we did exaggerate because it's more than a little injection. I used to go into houses and do it. In front. We, we couldn't suggest taking a body back from a house. They wouldn't have it at all. Uh, but I have battled at one o'clock in the morning in rooms and with curtains across and trying to keep everything as quiet as anything and with a little hand pump, and people used to say, ah, oh, they're spraying the remains. Now... I let them believe that because I didn't say no, no, or not. Because if that's, if we didn't want to upset them because it was very hard to... to come. Nowadays, people understand things, they understand what embalming is about, and it's no problem. In fact, they'd come in, they would, wouldn't have a funeral without embalming, probably. 
Back in Fitzgerald's funeral home, Martin and Bill are getting ready for friends and family to view the remains and offer their sympathies. How important is it when it comes to presenting the deceased? One of the major points, you know, is the person and how well they look. You know, we try to make it as natural as possible. Um, We work very hard with it. We put a lot of time into it. You do have subtle changes that happen throughout the course, the average funeral being three days. You know, you'll have changes. But, you know, thank God, with the the hygiene treatment we can carry out now, you know, they're, they're very slight compared to what they once would have been. And do you do you use makeup? Do you yes, we do. We do. We 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 put on makeup when the family would like. Some people wouldn't like makeup on, so we just use a very light when makeup. And uh, we have a young lady then that would come in and do the hair and and makeup as well. You know, particularly if you're a, a younger person, you know, maybe a young girl or a, a young lady or a young mother. You know, be a bit more stylish than myself. And do you ask the family then what kind of, say, lipstick this person would have worn, or how, how do you get them looking like themselves? If if they give us their makeup, we use it, or else we use our own. You know, we'd often sometimes ask for a picture. One thing that we always say to the family when they come for the first viewing, whether it's at the house or here at the funeral home, that any changes they wish us to make, to ask us that they have all to say. A woman told me recently that when her sister was laid out, she looked beautiful, but her hair was tucked behind her ear. And she never would have tucked her hair behind her ear. So the sister reached into the coffin and untucked it for her. Okay, so basically, well, you have your, your machine here. Back at the Death Care Academy, Martina Burns is showing Carol how to make up a deceased body. They're using a mannequin. And then you have your remains there. So you try to get the nearest colour that would suit the person. Um, so you just... It's like foundation kind of it. It is, yeah. There is a foundation. Yeah. Um, so basically, when... Yeah. Is the same airbrushing brushing technique used in live people? Um, it would be, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the best thing about this is that if you if you're using it on, say, um, if you're using it on remains that have maybe been in a car crash, um, yeah. and they have like little uh, cuts on their face, and you want oh, to cover them up, yeah. especially with the man as well, with facial hair and stuff like that it actually will go in between the actual facial hair and it's not like not with the normal sort of yeah. foundation when you'd be putting it on with a sponge yeah. that you can actually see it, it'll actually go in sort of between the actual hairs Yeah, uh, it's more there. natural finish yeah. yeah. so basically and it sprays them yeah, it just, it's basically just like a, a spray tan if you yeah. have ever got a spray tan so like that you can just go gently with the, the colour that you want and then also then you would match your lipstick then maybe yeah. with the colour of the clothes that the deceased person is wearing yeah. or the family may also actually give you so their actually the lipstick, lipstick that they have actually worn yeah. the whole yeah. time and then sometimes um, families would request then that they, there would be eye makeup done yeah. and the eyelashes yeah. and the eyebrows and eyeliner and that done yeah. as well. Yeah, now that you have your... Deceased person laid out, washed and banned, opportunity yeah. treated, mm-hmm. uh, hair done, cosmetics, yeah. ready for that big dance in the sky. Yes. They need to be placed in a coffin now. Yeah, so if you're, again, a lot of heavy lifting yeah. and a lot of lifting was near. So this is a new design that has been introduced in the last five years. It's oh, what, right. we, what we call a universal coffin loader. Oh, okay. And it's made in such a way that it can drop down and you can actually take it away in your hair. It'll go right down to 14 inches. So it'll go in underneath the deck of your house. Um, right. 
So just take the lift. Can I ask Carol here, does hearing all of this make you question your decision to learn how to be a funeral director? No. No, it doesn't. It doesn't question, it just makes you want to do it as best as I can, I suppose. Be able to do it properly, to be able to do it right. To learn more about it, I'd be interested, more interested nearly now than, you know, before, yeah. Once the body is prepared and in the casket, the deceased is laid out, ready for friends and family to see. To say a last goodbye before the coffin is closed. Sorry for your trouble. In an Irish funeral home, hundreds of people might file past the open coffin, murmuring sympathies. Sorry for your troubles. Sorry for your troubles. The traditional Irish wake took place in the house. The keen, an ancient Irish lament, was performed by the women of the community. As Padre Riada explains, in Irish culture there were strong mystical and spiritual undertones to the period around a death. You die, you leave your body, you find it hard to believe that you're dead, uh, and during that period we kind of instinctively know uh, as a culture that people are on, so we fashion uh, events or to let them know the respect we had for them and to uh, heal our own broken parts at the rendering asunder of this relationship. And at midnight, usually on the first night, that's kind of a turning key point. And there's a lot of, as a rosary usually said at that stage, and once that is done on the first night, there's a kind of the first hurdle has been stepped over, if you like. So then usually people leave about one, uh, 20, half past one, and there's a hardcore left who stay up with the body. The origin of that was to guard it in case any other bad spiritual thing would try and come and take it. Um, but in reality what it was was a period when they would stay with the body so that the person who was dead of coming back could hear the conversation and could be there. And, I, and there would be quite a lot of laughter sometimes. And I remember one week where a good friend of the person who was dead was tired and he just lay back along with the corpse in the bed for a while and we didn't think anything strange of it. And in the morning after that first night, I've often noticed that kind of gloaming uh, is kind of a strange time. I remember the BJs being frightened out of me one morning when I was coming home from work and I met a whole lot of hares dancing in the morning mist um, because hares are quite often thought to be the dead returning uh, to visit the world again. Martin and Bill's funeral parlour is a long way from the mystical in-between world that Padder describes. This is where the remains often spend the night, on their own. An unsettling thought if Padder is right and the soul hovers around the body for three days after death. So what do you call this room? Uh, this is just, we, we refer to it as the main room. Some people use funeral parlour. And there's a lady here yes. whose funeral is taking place tonight. That's correct. The grief is part of what I would find hard about being a funeral director, being around people all the time who are grief-stricken. Bill and Martin seem so competent and emotionally contained. I asked them, did that aspect of the job ever get to them? It's very difficult. Each family 
grieve differently. Possibly every each member of each family grieve differently, and you have to try to put yourself in their place. I'm married. I, I have three small children. You know, we've seen a fair share of very sad funerals. You know, we can sympathise with people. You know, look at the same story. Um, like, like my mother passed away in '98. You know, leaving behind a very young family. I had a small brother that was only 13. You know, we can we can actually sympathise. We understand. You know, and if it didn't affect you at sometimes, like you wouldn't be human. But. We can't allow that. There's no point in me being a wreck at the, the foot of the stairs for the family. We're there to help them. If you're a funeral director, what do you try to protect your family from some of that? Well, you do. I mean, like my children only have one childhood. You know, and I try to leave it at the door when I come home. You know, so the department allows it. The impact on the funeral director's family is something Conor Massey is still aware of years after retiring. You're just so involved in it. It's so part of the family. It took over the family completely. Uh, I worked for the majority of my life. I had one day off a fortnight, and that was a Sunday, because we worked Sundays, Saturdays, all the rest of it. I missed football games and sports with my children, all of that kind of stuff that's normal today. But for him, the most difficult aspect of the job was something that I hadn't really thought of. In my shower every morning, I said a prayer that I stopped saying the day I retired, because I didn't have to say it anymore. Please, God, let nothing go wrong today. It's the greatest worry. In every other business, mistakes can be made. You can be late with deliveries or whatever. You ring the person, say, I'm sorry, there's a slight hold-up, we'll have it, won't have it today, we'll have it tomorrow. That's no problem at all. With a funeral, you cannot, you cannot make a mistake. Imagine, horror of horrors, the grave not being opened when you arrive at the cemetery. Imagine not putting the notice in the paper. Imagine the car not turning up to pick up the family. All of these things. Can you imagine the effect, what the, the, the consequences of such a thing happening? Imagine arriving at a church and the church knowing nothing about the funeral arriving. And that's something we always keep in mind, that you know, if we do 100 funerals perfectly... And unfortunately, something goes wrong. You know, that's the one people remember. The one. So we're always striving. In most Irish funerals, the church is the main event. It's where grief is made public, where the tears can flow. But there's no place for emotion from the funeral director. I believe that a good funeral director should not be seen. He should be there. He should be standing back from the from the coffin and from the mourners, but that he is keeping an eye to everything. And if anything pops up, that he's he's there at that time to look after things. It doesn't matter if the person was eight years old. That was still someone's mother or father. You know, that is that is their loss. You know, you can be saying fine age or something like that, but no, we don't say that because you know that is their loss. You know, they, someone has lost someone very important to them. People, you, you get cross too. Like you see some things and you say, "This is awful." Like, but you still have to go through it. 
And I think you wouldn't be able to go through it unless you got the grace to go through it. You know, there are very, very, very sad occasions. And there are some things that are very, that just, that even at my age, I still find difficult to do, you know? thing is to look at the people you know and sometimes you go too far and you you take on their loss yourself if you don't have compassion you can nearly throw your hat at it compassion is what is absolutely crucial to being a good film director There's, there is more meaning to this. There's a reason to do it. And there's, you know, the people in the background, the families and, and the people of, you know, the loved ones, the people who have died, you know it's going to make a big difference to their life. And they'll remember forever. And so if you don't get it right, they'll remember that. But hopefully you will, you will get it as right as possible, which is a really nice thing. You feel like you've really done something worthwhile. You've done something of meaning and, you know, you've made a difference in some small way to somebody's life. The funeral service is over. The outpouring of grief has been facilitated. But the job is not finished. That's placed over the grave. So when the lads take the coffin down, they place it on that roller and the coffin rolls into position. So that sits around the outside of the grave? That sits over the hole, basically. So when the six lads take it off their shoulders, it's not left to two men then. Even on the coldest of days, mourners will make their way to the grave and stand to witness the final part of the process. The worst example you give would be a really filthy wet day in a country churchyard or even in a city churchyard, a city cemetery in, in, in Dublin. Lashing rain, there's a big ugly hole in the ground heaps of earth and all around, and four men with tapes lower a coffin into this yawning gap. The priest is there huddled, and the prayers are said, and we depart home. When you've walked back from that wet graveyard and the hole in the ground and all the rest, and mud on your shoes and all the rest, you do know that that is the end. That that's the end of the life as we know it, I think it's good for a family to know that, yes, we've done it properly. He's, um, he's in the ground. After the graveyard, the Fitzgeralds go back to the office. They assess how every funeral went. They look for ways to improve. At the end of a funeral, you come back and you look at this, what you've done what constitutes a funeral well done for you? Well, I mean, there's nothing as 
good as the family coming up and shake your hand and saying thank you. It mightn't even be the day of the funeral. They might stop me in the street a few days later or maybe when they come in to settle the account. But, you know, it's nice to be... Everyone likes to be thanked. You know, if they don't thank me, that's fine too. But, you know, majority of people do. So we might thank them or not. And we'll remember all sorts of things about the heightened time when we lost a loved one. How well he looked in the coffin, the curl behind her ear. But most of us won't remember everything. We meet people in lifts and they're looking at us and they, they can't recognise us. But if, uh, you know, if I was wearing a black suit, they'd go, oh, you're so-and-so, you know. You, know, you could see a person looking over and they're trying to work out where they know me from. And then I'd say who I am and they'd go, oh, you, you're buried to someone belonged to us and so on. <laughs> 